This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 28, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Brian Nosick discusses reproducing 100 psychology experiments. Newswriter Lizzie Wade talks with Suzanne Bard about the rise of moralizing gods. And David Grimm is here with stories on debunking dragons, steps towards a universal flu vaccine, and the relationship between short titles and citation. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on an ancient art debunking. I love a good debunking. <laughs> Something about truth, justice, and science winning out in the end. It's my kind of story. How about you, Dave? I love, I love a good debunking. Okay, so in this case, we're talking about a bizarre idea that started up in the 1940s based on an ancient painting. Paint a picture for us, Dave. <laughs> well, this is a rock painting in southeast Utah's Black Dragon Canyon. And the dragon is actually very appropriate here because when amateur rock art enthusiasts first spotted this in the 1920s and somebody sketched an outline of this particular piece of art in the 1940s, what this person sketched looked a lot like a dragon, a dinosaur, a flying reptile. And this idea really took hold among some people, especially young Earth creationists, people who believe Earth is only a few thousand years old, because this seemed to be evidence of the idea, because the painting was maybe a thousand, couple thousand years old, that humans may have lived around the same time as dinosaurs and other beasts. There is a lot of evidence to the contrary for that. But for some reason, this painting has been brought up over and over again. So researchers sought out a way to debunk the idea that this is a painting of a dragon or a dinosaur. How did they tackle the problem? Well, you know, if you look at this thing, and there's a picture of it on the site, you know, it does look 
It does look a little bit like a winged reptile. I say foggy goose. <laughs> it does. Maybe a foggy goose is more accurate. Experts over the years, uh, scientific experts, have gone up to the rock itself and said, no, 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 this is not a winged reptile. This is probably five figures, maybe a couple human figures, and maybe a, a couple animal figures. But the problem is because this art is so ancient, it's been exposed to the elements, that it's hard to say definitively what exactly it is that we're looking at. I would never guess that it was five figures, but the people who were talking about that knew kind of the history of the art of that region, right? Right, they did. And, they, you know, the art of this region, it's called Barrier Canyon style. It tends to depict sometimes people with animals, and the idea seems to be potentially something shamanistic, something about maybe connecting with nature or the spiritual aspects of nature. Nobody's really sure. So what the researchers did in this new study is they used a couple of very modern tools, one called D-Stretch, which is used in computers and some cameras that actually boosts and sharpens the original pigments you would see in something like rock art. Also something called X-ray fluorescence, which really actually helps bring out some of these red ochre pigments that were used to construct the art in the first place. And the end result, which you can also see on the site, is a very clear picture of something that doesn't look anything like a winged reptile, but actually looks a lot like a couple human figures, as well as a bighorn sheep and, and something that's maybe like a horned serpent. Are we going to have to worry about horned serpents now? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think so the scientists are pretty well satisfied at this point that, that everything depicted in this image is probably not older than a couple thousand years. <laughs> Next up, we have a story on a universal flu vaccine. I got the flu vaccine last year, and I got the flu. Why does this sometimes happen, Dave? We get vaccinated and get sick anyway. Yeah, well, you know, vaccines against the flu, it's kind of guesswork. What researchers do is they look for emerging strains in other countries, and they try to predict which strains are likely to make their way to the U.S., in our example. And the way they do this is they go after pieces of the virus. And when you actually get the flu, if you've had the vaccine, the idea is that your immune system is primed against these particular flu strains. As we all know, and as you discovered, Sarah, this doesn't always work out. And part of the problem is, is because they're going after a part of the virus that mutates very rapidly. And there are stable parts to these viruses, parts that don't change depending on what strain they're involved. And that's what the researchers in this new study or these two new studies took a look at. What did they focus on? What the teams looked at here was a protein called hemagglutinin, which is found on the surface of flu virus. Hemagglutinin has a couple of components ahead. And this is the portion of that really has a lot of mutations, sort of determines what strain the virus is going to be. And then there's a stem, which is a lot more consistent. And so the idea has long been, well, why don't we just go after the stem? Because that's not going to change from strain to strain. And if our immune system can recognize the stem portion, then it doesn't really matter what strain we get hit with, our immune system is still going to attack it. The problem is, is that when you take the head off, which you kind of need to do because you need to just look at particular pieces, the stem sort of falls apart. Right. So if you want to raise antibodies against a protein, you need to just specify which part of the protein. Is that what you're saying? Right. And you need to specify which part of the protein. And the, the problem is you can't just go after the stem because if the stem's falling apart, you can't effectively develop a vaccine. And so what the researchers did was they used some technologies, uh, nanoparticles, as well as introducing some mutations that really stabilized the stem. They were able to develop a vaccine against the stem. And what they found is in mice and ferrets and even in monkeys, the animals that had received this vaccine against the stem were protected from H5N1, which is a pretty lethal 
flu strain, actually the cause of avian flu. And so what this suggests is that the stem part is actually a promising target for future vaccines. And if it works, it could potentially be an advance towards this long-sought flu shot, which would basically protect you against all different types of strains of flu. Lastly, we have a story on brevity in the soul of citations. Citations are the currency of the scientific world. Earn lots and you may go far. Not everyone likes it. Citation rates vary by discipline and have been used to quantify the unquantifiable, like whether you're a good candidate for a job. And often they don't represent what people want them to represent. This study is a good example of that. What citation relation did the researchers look at, Dave? Well, the researchers wanted to know, does the length of your paper title determine how many citations you're going to get? And what's the short answer? The short answer is shorter is better. The team looked at 140,000 papers published between 2007 and 2013. They searched an online database known as Scopus. And what they found was that papers with shorter titles tended to have more citations than papers with longer titles. And actually, the strongest correlation they found was that journals that tended to publish papers with shorter titles tended to have a lot more citations than those that published papers with longer titles. And citations accumulate over time. So did this relationship hold up as time went by and more and more citations accumulated? Right, because um, when a paper first comes out, obviously you don't have that many citations. And so what they did find is that papers published earlier in the cycle they looked for exhibited a much stronger correlation with this title length effect than those that were published later. How short are we talking here? Can you give us some examples? Well, one of the shortest uh, they mentioned was a paper called Prions. That was it. Just one word. On the long end, we have a paper, let's say, let me just pick one of these, AMG145, a monoclonal antibody against proprotein convertase subtiliskin kexin type 9 significantly reduces lipoprotein A in hypercholesterolemic patients receiving statin therapy, colon, (laughs) an analysis from the LDLC assessment with proprotein convertase substatillin kexin kexin sorry type 9 monoclonal antibody inhibition combined with statin therapy thrombolysis in myocardial infarction 57 trial and that was actually one of the shorter of the longer paper there's got to be an acronym for that study <laughs> so anyway that paper apparently did not do as well as prions Is this really about title length? Does it have something to do with content, perhaps, or any other explanations out there for why we see this relationship? Yeah, there's a lot of other explanations. One explanation is that more prestigious journals that tend to get higher citation rates may actually impose limits on paper titles. Uh, Maybe a more prosaic explanation is that people are lazy, readers are lazy, and they just want to read fewer words. I've done my share of tweeting, and writing pithy headlines for complicated science is not easy. Any recommendations, Dave, for writing tidy titles? Skip all the verbs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about what the dust on your doorframe at home says about who lives in your house. Also a story about personality in ants. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why Former U.S. President Jimmy Carter may have some reason to be optimistic about fighting his cancer, thanks to some new cancer therapies. Also a story about how China's carbon emissions may be lower than thought, 
So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Reproducibility is a central tenet of science. If I do an experiment and get a result, could you do the same thing and see the same result? How likely is it that an experiment in the literature today can be reproduced? Brian Nosick and the Open Science Collaboration tried to find out the answer to this question by repeating 100 psychology experiments. I spoke to him about why so many didn't make the cut. Reproducibility is central to how science operates. We gain credence in claims. They gain more credibility as people are able to reproduce the results of prior research. It is through the ability to take someone else's data and find the same evidence in that data or to generate new data for the same question and repeat that evidence that scientific claims become part of the canon of knowledge. Despite that, systematic evaluation of reproducibility in science is very rare. We don't have a good handle on the factors influencing when research results are more or less reproducible. And there are a lot of incentives that face scientists that raise concerns about the rate of reproducibility of published research. For example, me as an individual researcher and the, the students in my lab gain the ability to get jobs, to keep our jobs, to advance in our careers by publishing. Publishing is the key incentive for science, and publishing does not necessarily depend on the results being reproducible. The key factors influencing publication are whether we get positive results, we find a relationship, whether those results are novel, they advance ideas in interesting directions, and whether the story is clean and tidy. None of those things necessarily lead to a better or more reproducible result. Right. And your focus is on research from three psychology journals. Why, why psychology? Is there a particular problem within that discipline? Well, it's about psychology because the team that started the project are psychologists. Uh-huh. Uh, and so really, this is a self-study, knowing that there are reproducibility challenges across disciplines, that the incentives driving researchers' behavior are general in science, but we had the skills and expertise to look at ourselves. And so that's where we started. And so the team gathered as a group of psychologists to design a study to do replications of work that we know and that we can do uh, well. Mm -hmm. One of the nice consequences of this work is that here at the Center for Open Science, we have extended now and are sponsoring projects in other domains. For this study, you looked at three journals and you sampled which studies to replicate. And you didn't say, oh, we're going to do all the ones that have this particular method or this kind of finding. How did you ensure that you had a fair sampling in order to to test this replication idea? Yeah, this is really important because the goal for this project was to maximize the generalizability of the result. And so our sampling frame was designed to be constrained so that we could have a real frame and be able to sample meaningfully from it. So it's 2008 issues of three prominent journals in psychology. A subset of those articles were made available to the replication teams. And then we tried to match each article and its topic with teams that had the resources, time, interest, and expertise to be able to do that kind of research. I thought it was really interesting that you managed to involve the authors of the original studies. What what was their role in this? 
in order to maximize quality, we need to make sure that each of these is as fair a test of the original research as possible. It'd be extremely easy to find a low reproducibility rate by doing terrible research. Right. So each team had a structured process of developing their materials, ideally after having received them from the original authors. They develop their own protocol and then send that to the original team for their review. And many times, the replication team would learn things in that process that they didn't realize about the research. So it was very productive. And most were very gracious, very helpful, very supportive, and really provided a lot of feedback in order to help maximize the quality of those replications. You're talking a lot about your replication teams, and this is a huge undertaking. How many teams were there, and how were you able to replicate so many different studies or attempt to replicate so many different studies? There were 100 replications conducted, and 270 co-authors of the paper It really is people volunteering their time, taking it away from the things that really will benefit their research careers and providing a service, saying that I'm willing to put aside some of my work and I'm not going to get a whole lot of credit as 253rd author of this article, but I will have contributed something to a collective effort to really examine a critical issue in our discipline and across science more broadly and hopefully advance this discussion. So why don't you take us through the results? Uh, What did you find when all these people tried to replicate these studies? Our most general result is that we were only able to reproduce a little less than half of the original studies. What we also saw is that across all of the studies, not every single study, but as a general characterization, we saw a substantial decline effect in the size, the magnitude of the effects in the replications compared to the original studies, about half the size in the replications. And then there were a number of investigations that we did in trying to figure out what correlates, what things are related to when a study reproduces or not in order to advance some research on that. When you say a study reproduces or was successfully replicated, what exactly does that mean about the original study and about, you know, the actual results of your work here? Yeah, it's actually a really hard question for two reasons. One is that there's three possible interpretations in a general sense. A replication could not get the original result because the original result might have been a false positive. There wasn't actually an effect there. It could also get a null result because the replication is a false negative. It didn't detect an effect that really is there. And the third, which is a very broad possibility, is that the conditions, the procedure, the protocol wasn't appropriate. It didn't have all of the things in it that are necessary to observe that effect. And that's just part of doing science. Mm -hmm. We don't know all the conditions that are necessary for each of the effects that we observe. I'm going to ask what sounds like the same question again, but I expect a different answer, actually. (laughs) What does it mean? What does it mean when you replicate an earlier study? Does that mean the study was correct in its finding? Does it justify everything that happened before? That's another subtly good question in the sense that there is much more complexity in terms of the nature of inference. And the answer is we don't know. We can reproduce it. We do find evidence consistent with that original finding. But we don't know that the original interpretation of that finding is accurate because the replication may have the same problems in its procedure or protocol or inference as the original did. We just were able to reproduce the evidence. And then on the flip side, 
not replicating that original result, saying we failed to replicate it, doesn't itself mean that the original result was false. Mm -hmm. This really is emphasizing one of these key principles of science is that no study is definitive of any piece of evidence, of any finding on its own. We are in a process of uncertainty reduction when we're doing science, mm -hmm. and each study contributes additional evidence to reduce that uncertainty. Kind of looking at the bigger picture, what are these findings, you know, the the inability to replicate so many of these studies, what does it say about the culture of science, how we do science, and as you mentioned earlier, yeah. publication bias? Well, we can't say definitively, but it is plausible that publication bias is responsible for a substantial part of this decline that we observed in the effects in the replications versus the original studies. And the reason that it's plausible is that we know that all of the replications were reported. There isn't any selective reporting of those original studies. We also know that they were relatively highly powered, given the original study effect sizes. Whereas in original research, it's very routine for me and my lab to run six different studies, and only three of those end up getting into print. What's characteristic of those other three? If those three that didn't get published are more likely to be negative results, are more likely to show weaker effects, are more likely to show confusing effects, then the published literature is going to be much prettier than the reality of what is understood about those effects. And so that is a very plausible reason why we have such a substantial decline. And it's almost certainly not the only reason. There are probably many other factors of in the particular studies that were done. So for the culture of science more broadly, what this adds evidence to is this accumulating a body of meta-science research of the importance of increasing transparency, openness, and reproducibility of scientific research. And there are many efforts like this underway. The top guidelines, which were published in Science just last month, are one of these efforts to provide standards for making data, materials, code more transparent and available, having them be posted to repositories by encouragement or as a condition of publication, pre-registering studies. And these are a lot of the efforts that we have here at the Center for Open Science are to provide free services to help promote transparency and openness, like the Open Science Framework, which is a web infrastructure to make it easier for researchers to share their data, materials, and code among their collaborators privately, but then transition that to making it more publicly accessible to reviewers or the public at large when they want to do that. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you. Brian Nosek and colleagues write about reproducibility this week in science. Today, the religions with the most adherents around the world place a big emphasis on human morality, with omniscient deities capable of even seeing into our very thoughts. But it hasn't always been this way. Moralizing gods may have been rare in the ancient world, with deities taking little interest in the day-to-day -day lives of mere mortals. So how did moralizing religions become so common? Science correspondent Lizzie Wade investigated the Big Gods Hypothesis, championed by University of British Columbia psychologist Ara Noren-Zion and others. They posit that as societies grew, moralizing gods led to cooperation between strangers. I'm Suzanne Bard. 
The big God hypothesis is trying to solve two puzzles at the same time. One is why moralizing gods have been so successful around the world. And the other puzzle is how humans manage to cooperate with strangers successfully enough to live in really, really big societies, which is something that no other animal does. So this hypothesis sort of ties those two aspects together and proposes that belief in moralizing gods is actually what gives us the cooperative push to be able to live and work with strangers without our own selfishness getting too much in the way. What's the difference between a moralizing god and, say, a non-moralizing god? Probably the best and most familiar example of a moralizing god is the Abrahamic god, which is, of course, the god of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. There's lots of rules about human behavior, how you treat other people in your community, especially other people who share your religion. So you can think of the Ten Commandments as a really good example. God cares about how you sacrifice your own selfish desires so the community as a whole can be more successful and survive. And that sort of seems like what all gods are like to us these days, but really they're pretty rare in terms of the whole sweep of human history and all the religions we practice. So in small-scale societies uh, like hunter-gatherer bands when kind of smaller tribes that are governed by a chief or something like that, they really won't have many gods as is the case of the Hadza, who are hunter-gatherers in Africa who don't really believe in gods at all. In small-scale societies, you'll often see things like ancestor spirits and nature deities that might be tied to a specific sacred place, but don't really make a lot of demands on people besides maybe a couple of taboos or appropriate offerings when the time is right. So moralizing gods, in addition to caring about morality will often have much more expansive powers than gods in small-scale societies. So in a small-scale society, you might have a god tied to a specific sacred place and won't be able to see kind of beyond its immediate vicinity. And moralizing gods tend to be omniscient. So they can not only see all of your actions all the time and are constantly judging them, they can also look inside your mind. So you actually have to police your thoughts in addition to your actions, which can be extremely effective if you want to encourage cooperation. If you have a god not only watching you at all times, but also in your head, you're going to be very careful about what you do and even what you think. Now, why wouldn't smaller groups also turn to moralizing gods? So this really surprised me because I thought religion was about coping with existential dread, basically, and, you know, fear of death and things like that. But it turns out that that's not really the case. And religion for hunter-gatherers can be very abstract. If you get down to really small-scale societies like the Hadza, they don't necessarily even believe in an afterlife. And the idea is that they don't really need any kind of supernatural interference to help them cooperate with each other. Everyone knows each other. You know, if you steal or lie too many times, no one will want to cooperate with you anymore. And you will be kind of on the outs with your community, which if you're a hunter-gatherer can be really a matter of life and death. And so that kind of keeps everyone in line. When you scale up to cities of today or large-scale agricultural communities that started popping up around 10,000 years ago, you need something else watching everyone because if you're just interacting with strangers all the time, there's no consequence to breaking your word or reneging on contract or kind of shirking your shared responsibility because you'll never see the person you're hurting again. 
So that's where these moralizing gods come in. They sort of say, you know, everyone must cooperate with each other. Here are the rules. Everyone must follow these rules. So it creates a level of trust between strangers if you know that everyone is practicing the same religion. Kind of fulfills that role that was fulfilled by friends and family in these smaller scale societies. This sounds like an intriguing hypothesis, but how do you test it? So there are a few different ways that they've gone about testing these theories. One is in laboratory experiments, both in the West with college students and people like that, and cross-culturally in lots of different kinds of societies all over the world. So they'll go in and prime people with religious reminders of whatever kind of faith they practice. So this might be a cross kind of hanging on the wall if you're a Christian. It might be whatever kind of symbol is associated with your local god if you live in a small-scale society. And they see how these primes kind of affect generosity with people in economic games. So these are games where you have to decide, you know, how much money you're going to give to an anonymous person. And there's been some experimental evidence that when people worship more punitive gods, especially like the Abrahamic god, reminders of those faiths will increase the amount of money people give away to strangers. So that suggests a link between religion and pro-sociality and cooperation and generosity, which is sort of the first thing you need to know if this theory is going to work at all. Now what they're trying to do is, first of all, expanding their cross-cultural work. And second of all, they're trying to look back in the historical record. So one of the ideas is that big gods did not just happen by accident when people started living in these big societies made possible by agriculture, but rather the cooperative force that brought people together under a big god helps them settle down in these larger communities. So they're going back, they're creating a database of different kinds of religions, traditions from around the world and throughout history, kind of looking at their pro-social strictures, you know, did this religion have a moralizing God? Does it care about whether or not you kill people? Does it care about stealing? Does it care about respecting your elders or things like that? And looking at those correlations between what kinds of societies these religions either emerged in or what kinds of societies they created in their wake. So does studying religion in this way raise any eyebrows? Yes, this can be quite controversial in the humanities, although more and more people are getting on board. So historians and religious studies scholars usually study one tradition at a time. You'll have a very specific niche that you'll spend your whole career studying and really reach a deep understanding of that. But for this kind of project, you need to look at all sorts of religions all over the world, and you need to find the traits that they share or don't, which is not something that the humanities has been a really big fan of doing, but it's gaining ground. Interesting. Now, I've read that there are competing hypotheses to explain how moralizing religions came to be. Yeah, there are a few. So really, the scientific study of religion as a whole, rather than one tradition or another, took off in the 90s and early 2000s with this thing called the cognitive science of religion. And the big theory out of that was that belief in supernatural agents and therefore deities were a byproduct of other cognitive abilities that we have. So our brains are just really good at picking out intentionality and actions behind processes or noticing human forms in the natural world. And, you know, if you hear like sort of an unexplained noise, you don't really ask, what was that? You think, oh, who was that? And you think maybe it's a burglar, maybe it's a lion that's going to come eat me, which could be evolutionarily 
helpful. But those same processes make us just kind of inclined to believe in the supernatural. And so the Big Gods team thinks that this byproduct hypothesis isn't sufficient to explain the overwhelming success of moralizing gods around the world. But some people do think it is. And some people think that you can explain all sorts of religions just as byproducts of different kinds of psychological circumstances in different kinds of societies. So there's another theory that says moralizing gods didn't give anyone a cooperative advantage, but rather once societies were successful enough that at least a certain class of people stopped having to worry about getting enough food to eat every day, they could start worrying about saving resources for later, they could start worrying about the afterlife, saving things for after death, which really doesn't make sense if you're starving, if you're risking starvation by doing that. Once you got rich enough, basically, your psychological priorities shift. And they think that once whole societies got rich enough, the psychological priorities could shift away from just getting what I need today to thinking about self-sacrifice, asceticism, saving for the afterlife, things like that. And that could have been the way that moralizing gods arose in different societies around the world. Now, when I was reading about this, I immediately thought of ancient Greek and Roman societies with their highly organized and politically complex societies. It seems to me that their gods were more interested in their own petty squabbles than watching over the moral shortcomings of humans. Yeah, I think there are two ways that the big gods team would look at Greeks and Romans. Also, I think ancient Egypt is a good way to think about these kind of older gods. So you could say, on the one hand, how big were the societies in Greece, for example? How big is the city-state compared to the Islamic empire? And like, what kinds of purposes do you need gods to serve in different side societies as they scale up? Another way is to think about what it really means to be moral and pro-social and so in the case of ancient Egypt, for example, you have a lot of religious strictures against interfering with the Nile, which doesn't strike us today as being particularly moral. But in the context of ancient Egypt, when everyone relied on cooperative agricultural practices and taking more water than you were allotted or stopping the flow for your neighbors could really, really screw things up for the rest of the society. Whether or not that is considered a moral concern is something that the scholars are debating right now. Beyond our conception of morality, what did other types of societies consider pro-social and moral? What kinds of social norms would they have needed help enforcing to make their societies work? It's different around the world. How did societies with moralizing religions spread and become so successful, as we know from Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and even Mormonism today? Once a belief in a moralizing God emerged, people became more cooperative, the society became bigger and bigger, other people wanted to join that society. And this is sort of where rituals and what are called costly displays of faith come in. So this could be anything from a big financial donation to your church to circumcision or scarification rituals or some other kind of traumatic bodily modification process. These are ways of really proving that you're a true believer. These become kind of shorthands for trustworthiness. So when people want to join the religion, they also go through these processes to prove that they're all in, basically, and that they can be trusted to cooperate and uphold the same social norms 
that the rest of the religious society does. And as this happens, the society just does better and better because they're more and more cooperative, whether they're able to grow a lot more food than everyone else because their irrigation systems are just so much more effective, or whether that's because, in the case of Islam, that they're able to create these worldwide networks of trade based on things like swearing on the Quran and mutual trust between Muslims all over the world, these economic and social benefits that a big cooperative society brings along with it. And as more and more people want to do that, that just helps these religions get bigger and bigger. Thanks for speaking with me, Lizzie. Thank you. Lizzie Wade writes about the big gods hypothesis, This Week in Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S.org join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.